I'd like you to grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Right in the middle of your Bible there in the poetic section. Uh, Last week we looked at the wise and the foolish, if you remember that, from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we had certain marks of wise people and foolish people. And Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is really bound together around two big certainties. Last week, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, if you remember that, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. And we said last week that in light of God's uh, sovereign, providential uh, control of the variability of life, the changing seasons that we experience, there is certainty, one, certainly one big reality that you will have to reckon with in your life under the sun. You will die. There will be a day where we bury you and we put you in the ground and your life on this planet will come to an end and you will step into eternity. Well, Ecclesiastes 7 holds that idea of certainty of our death along with another big certainty that we're going to have here at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you remember, Solomon is trying to wrestle with the reality of what is good What does it look like for me to have a good life in my life under the sun? And he said last week that, well, wisdom helps with that. There's a certain reality that life uh, works a certain way and relatively to a degree with broad strokes, generally speaking, wisdom is a good thing. But wisdom throughout the book of Ecclesiastes has not been an ultimate thing, has it? Wisdom, both the wise and the foolish, they both die. Well, the rich and the poor, they both die. The ones with high reputation and low reputation, well, they die too. And Solomon is seeking to wrestle with, well, well, now what? In light of death, what is the way in which I ought to operate in life? And I'll remind you that Solomon throughout this book is operating without an eye to the spiritual. He's taking his perspective and forcing his philosophy of life into every single corner of life to see if he can reason it out. And he's going to face another frustrating certainty of life here today in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So let me pray, and we'll jump in here together, see what God would teach us. Father, we give thanks again for these members. We give thanks again for those who model for us the fact that we have been buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in new life. Father, we are so thankful for the resurrection that proclaims freedom and forgiveness of sins, that gives us certainty that we have your spirit, and the spirit in us gives us the strength to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you would give us clarity, that you would give us insight, that you would teach us some things about ourselves, perhaps that we haven't considered before, that you would open our eyes to the reality of who you are and who Jesus is to us and how much hope and joy and peace there is as a result of him being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. So Father, bless us as we look into your word here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you got Ecclesiastes 7 in front of you? I want to give you a little bit of a running start. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, really you could preach it in one big sweep. But I want to give us a running start with the verse we left off last week from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14. You see that? 7 verse 14 says this, in the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider 
God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we said that last week, God is not absent, but God is sovereign. Not only is God sovereign, God is providential, that he is moving all of history toward its designed and desired conclusion according to his will and his sovereign power and ability. And what it created for us is an inability to understand at any given time in our lives what God is doing. Have you, have you had those situations? You have situations in life right now where you go, I don't know what God is doing in this situation in my life. And there's an invitation from Solomon to recognize God's sovereign providential ordering of life and to recognize here that there's a lot about life we don't understand. Now that's gonna be helpful for us as we continue to meditate on what Solomon will call wisdom. But he begins and he kind of continues this line of reasoning based upon verse 14 that we'd understand. Life doesn't always make sense. And there's a hardwired inability, not just in creation to not get gain, which we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter one, but there's a hardwired inability in us that frankly, we don't understand life, amen? Oh, you do. Okay. I got to preach to a different church. That's the problem. We don't understand life. Amen? Amen. Amen. We don't understand life all the time. That's good. I'm glad you gave me that initial illustration. That's going to prove helpful in this sermon. So that's where he starts. Now look at verse 15. In my vain life, Solomon is so encouraging in this book, isn't he? In my, in my life that passes just like a breath, I have seen everything. So Solomon recognizes, I'm not going to understand how God operates the world. I don't understand the seasons of life. Some are good, some are bad. Some I should rejoice, some are difficult, and I've got to rest on God's plan and providential working of all things. But what Solomon is going to do with that tension of verse 14 is talk about his experience. And he begins with saying, I have seen it all. I have seen everything. Now you can imagine Solomon is now going to take his experience and he's going to bring it right up next to God's sovereignty. And what it's going to create, newsflash, it's not going to create peace in his heart. It's going to create some tension. Because we all have, no matter what kind of experience you have, no matter how much you have seen in your life under the sun, there is a tension between God's sovereignty and providence and your experience, isn't there? That leaves you uncertain, confused, unable to figure it out. And that's going to characterize all the way through this passage. Look at what he starts, though. This is the, the tension in his life that bothers him when he considers God's sovereign ordering of the times. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Ain't that annoying? Have you found that to be true? That there are the righteous, there are those who are seeking God's will and praying and asking for insight and loving their neighbor and serving their neighbor in their life. There's probably a sense here that their life is cut short. That what happened? Why did God take them home so soon? Why did the end of their life quickly get snuffed out. What happened there? 
And if there's something that makes us experience tension of God's sovereignty, it's this feeling that, that is hardwired in us and really is shown in the book of Proverbs that it seems like a lot of times the righteous and the wise have a life that is prolonged, doesn't it? That we want in our hearts, we, we don't watch movies like this, where the righteous and the successful and the wise have their life cut short. We want to see the good guy win. We want to see him get the girl and happily ever after and the tension of the movie finally resolve and give us rest and relief that, ah, good has won out. And then Solomon tells us, I've seen everything and this is something that I've experienced, that the righteous life is cut short, but the wicked's life is prolonged. If you've ever read Psalm 73, I'm not going to make you turn there now. You can read it on your own. But one of the most difficult things for the psalmist in Psalm 73 is the fact that the wicked are successful, that the wicked don't seem to have any problems, that the wicked glide through life, that the wicked make a bunch of money, that the wicked eat a lot of good food, that the wicked seem to somehow escape God's judgment for their sin. The longest reigning king in the Old Testament, in First and Second Kings, is a guy named Manasseh. He reigns for 55 years. He's the longest reigning king in all of the, the, all of the chronicles of the kings. And he is the single most wicked individual you would find. He, and he uh, uh, engages in uh, bringing extra altars into God's house. He engages in mediums and spiritists and necromancers and consulting the dead. He engages in child sacrifice. And God gives him 55 years on the throne. Isn't that, doesn't that chap you? Doesn't that bother you? That those you think ought to have a long life have it cut short, and those you think ought to get about another hour and a half get another 50 years. Now, is that a pressure on someone who's trying to make sense of life and wrestling with God's providential wisdom and providential sovereignty? That's a problem for Solomon. Now, how do you think Solomon, stop, pause right there. Before you look at the next verse, how do you think he's going to resolve that? What's your answer to those questions? Read Psalm 73 and you'll see how the psalmist answers that particular difficulty. But Solomon and his life under the sun doesn't appeal to a New Testament spirituality of uh, absent from the body means present with the Lord. Solomon doesn't do that. He doesn't give an eye toward the afterlife so much. He's still dealing with life under the sun, the things he can uh, put his hands on through his five senses. Look at what he says. Be not overly righteous. What a weird statement, isn't that? Let me pause. Let me say this. I meant to say this in the beginning. This is probably the most difficult text in the book of Ecclesiastes. The things that Solomon says in this chapter are hard to wrestle with. So he responds, with the, he responds to life's variability. The variability of the righteous die young and the wicked prolong their lives. What is going on? And he lands on this. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Which seems like really weird advice, doesn't it? Be holy, but not that much. 
do good, but just, you know, don't overdo it. Now, I'll show you why his path through the middle isn't temperance, because that doesn't really make sense of the text. But he's going to recognize something about these two ways of approaching life that seek to make sense of the variability of the righteousness and the wickedness that seem to end their lives at different times. And he starts here with saying, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? The destroy yourself word is, is a word that's used either in uh, a lot of different places in the Old Testament to speak of like desolation. That it says that the land is desolate and destroyed and ruined. But it's also used in the context of an emotional kind of ruin. Where it would mean that you are appalled at life. That you're astonished that this would happen. You with me so far? Now watch the second half, and I'll explain how these two work together. Now verse 17, he says something similar. Don't be overly wicked. Well, what does that mean? I mean, stop eating salad. Something's got to kill me. Is that what he means? Don't be overly wicked. I mean, like, you know, test it out. Don't go overboard. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So on one hand, he speaks to this overly righteous pursuit of life, this overly wise ambition in life. And he says, you will face something that will ruin you emotionally. You will be appalled and astounded at the fact that your overly righteous pursuit of life, your overly wise ambition in life will frustrate you. But also Solomon recognizes that we can die before our time by doing stupid things, right? that we can drink and drive and make a couple of bad decisions that end our life too soon. Verse 18, it's good that you should take a hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. If you want, just put Yoda in there if you're taking notes. Does that make sense? It's good that you should take hold of this and from that also take hold of that. That you shouldn't, uh, you, you should kind of find a way between both of these realities. Now let me explain what he's saying here. When he talks about being overly wise, what he's saying is, is connected to verse 14 and connected to verse 15. Did you see that? In verse 14, he talks about God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's ability to order our times. Proverbs, uh, Proverbs, um, verse 15, he says that your death is coming and you don't know when. So in light of the fact that God orders the time and in light of the fact that your life will end at a time and in a way that you don't know right now, Solomon is, is lifting up two different approaches to life that seek to make sense of verse 15, the fact that you will die. One is the morality approach. One is me deciding that I'm going to go to church, not only church on Sunday, I'm going to go Sunday night too. I'm going to take communion twice a week. I'm also going to really work hard to serve my neighbors. I'm going to give a lot of money. I'm also going to come Wednesday night. I'm going to lead a community group, serve with the four-year-olds. I'm going to make my life about the church. Because if I do that, God has to give me long life. You with me? On the other hand, we don't need God. All of you people who are so religious and trying to find your hope and well-being and going to church, you're foolish. 
What you got to do is lay hold of life and go pursue all of your ambitions, all of your desires. Get the most out of life you can. Live like hell. Because we don't want God, but what we want is the joy and comfort in life. See, both of these extremes in Solomon's assessment are insufficient to deal with the reality of death, aren't they? Because all of us, we all do this. We all move our way through life thinking, if I put in four and four and four, I'm guaranteed 12. If I do, God owes me. If I do, then God better hold up his end of the bargain. You with me? It's good that you should take hold of this and from that not withhold your hand for the one who what? Fears God. What does it mean to fear God in context? Well, go back to verse 14. Verse 14 says that God is sovereign. God is providential. God orders the times and seasons of our lives and what you and I should do is not step into our lives with an agenda to control and to manipulate and to put in quarters so that we would get out the produce that we want. Solomon says the wise approach to life is not this ambition where I seek to subvert God's plans and manipulate life under the sun and just get out of it what I want to get out of it. My goal in life then becomes not the middle way of temperance but the middle way of fearing the Lord of recognizing that, God, you are sovereign and I am not. God, you know things about this life that I do not, that there are things in my life that I can't make sense of, that I don't know the times and the seasons. I don't know, in fact, what you're doing. But, Father in heaven, I bow my knee and recognize that you're God and I'm not. And that is the way you go through life. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. See, fear of the Lord, you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've heard that in Proverbs. Do you know why it's the beginning? It's that you've got to set your corners to build a house well, right? I don't know if that's true. If you're an architect, maybe that's not true. That's a great illustration, though. You can use that at work this week. Apply that illustration to your line of work, whatever it is. You've got to do the basics first. Our kids play basketball. And we start every, you know, when we start them young with basketball, they've got to do the basics. They've got to slide. They've got to dribble. They've got to walk. They've got to shoot. They've got to keep their head up. They've got to do all of these things that get the basics worked into them. And for the Christian, we've got to start at the basics. We've, a lot of times, we get frustrated with this reality. That all of a sudden our life goes sideways, we thought it should be going better, we're frustrated at God, we're bitter at how he's acting, but we haven't started with the basics. That we are here for 70 or 80 years, that God is eternal in the heavens, and Psalm 115 says, he does all that he pleases. If you start there, now we can start having a conversation 10 steps ahead. So we start with the fact that God is God and we are not. And that begins to order our lives so that we lay, we take hands off our life a little bit to recognize that, boy, God has been doing things before I got here. Do you know God did some things before 1977 when I was born? I couldn't believe it. 
You know God's gonna do things after I'm gone. You know God's gonna be doing stuff after you're gone. You know God's still gonna be in control. You heard Revelation, right? He's gonna bring everything to its ultimate and desired conclusion for the glory of God. And we start with the fear of God. Now, wisdom all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is not a bad thing, right? Wisdom is a good thing. But wisdom doesn't give you autonomous control of life, does it? I don't care how wise you are. You can't control what is going to happen in life. You can respond to it. You can see some principles in life that maybe somebody else might not see. But you certainly don't have autonomous control, do you? Verse verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Is wisdom good? Make you smarter than 10 politicians. That's pretty good, isn't it? We could use some of that, couldn't we? It doesn't make you smart. It makes you what? Say strong. It makes you strong. It creates a, a steel spine in your life. It creates a strength in your life that you are now able to navigate the rough waters Because you know some things about God and who he is. You know some things about who you are. You know some things about how to order your life for judgment day. It makes you strong. Verse 20. But watch it. See, you see in this passage up to this point, strength, uh, I'm sorry, wisdom and righteousness are put together. Did you see that? Back in verse 15, that they're, they're put right next to each other. Overly righteous, overly wise. They're, they're like this. Here, Solomon says, hey, it's good to be wise. Wisdom makes you strong, but be careful. Verse 20, certainly there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isn't that frustrating? I don't care how wise you get. You still put your pants on one leg at a time, and you're still a sinner, just like everybody else. I don't care how accomplished, how much experience, how many reps you've had at life and experiences of things that you've walked through with God, the certainty about who you are and who I am is that we're sinners. Do you have a uh, Romans 3 cross-reference there in your Bible? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's your Old Testament, Romans 3.23. You may have 1 Kings 8. Do you have that? Who has 1 Kings 8? You have 1 Kings 8? 1 Kings 8 is when Solomon sets up the temple. And as the temple is set up, he goes and he prays. And he asks God. And he said, God, when your people sin, for there is no one who does not sin, would you turn and listen to their prayers? So even here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon recognizes wisdom is good. Wisdom makes you strong. But you're still a sinner. Remember last week what screwed up the wise? Money. That a surly oppression drives the wise to madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Can you still do foolish things if you're wise? Can you still make some choices that are painful in your life because of your sin? Yeah, that's too convicting. Let's not talk about that anymore. Now, watch this. This is, I love the Bible. Gosh, the Bible is so brilliant. Even up to this point, you're going, Steve, I'm pretty wise. I've avoided sin pretty good in my life, and I've been pretty successful with some things that I've tried. I certainly must be less of a sinner than some of these other fools. 
there certainly are some things in my life that I've figured out and I've solved. Steve, I've been wise. Solomon, I know what it means to be wise and to be strong and to navigate some rough waters in life. Oh, do you? Look at verse 21. Don't take to heart all the things that people say. You want another good tattoo? That's a good tattoo. Good, like right in the shoulder so people can see it at the beach. Don't take to heart all the things that people say. Well, why not? Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Who is it that works for you, you servant? It looks, I've been both an employee and a boss. And through all of my times of being an employee, there has never been a job that I have worked where the, where the employees didn't have an issue with the boss. Isn't that humbling? Where you go, man, there have been some conversations I've had that if the boss was around, that person would not have a J-O-B anymore. And Solomon says, don't take to heart all the things people say. You might hear the people who work for you have uh, less of an encouraging perspective on you than you think you have. But that's not really the reality that he's pointing to because track with him, wisdom makes you strong. Don't listen to things, other things that people say because your servant might have a hard time with who you are and the kind of boss that you are. Now here's how we know that you're still a sinner. Look at the remainder of verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. Oof. you know that you haven't managed your tongue in the way that you are supposed to. You see Solomon's brilliance? See, a lot of us like to um, maintain a sense of righteousness, righteousness by being upstanding citizens, right? That we don't cheat on our taxes, we haven't murdered anybody, we haven't cheated on our spouse, we show up to work on time. We pay our parking tickets. We don't speed generally to a degree, whether or not if anybody cops are around or it's the flow of traffic or, you know. <laughs> right? But very few of us, when somebody asks, how is your personal sanctification going? How are you doing at growing into the man or the woman that God wants you to be? Very few of us look at our tongue and our words. Very few of us look at the New Testament admonitions that our words ought to be seasoned with salt. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Sounds a lot like uh, James 3, doesn't it? Remember James 3? The tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of, rep of reptile or sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The godliest people I know the people who have exhibited a consistent growth in righteousness and sanctification and knowing and loving and serving Jesus Christ are evidenced by how they speak. Because slander, gossip, libel, what's libel? In print, right? Uh, all of that stuff, it, Twitter, just all of Twitter, 
All of it is evidence of unsanctified heart. Who can tame the tongue? Jesus Christ can tame the tongue. So when you are around people who are mature and have walked with Jesus a long time, you will inevitably find that what comes out of their mouth is encouragement and joy and peace. Because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? It speaks. So you want proof that you're a sinner? Just listen to yourself for about, you know, 20 minutes. And see if you don't recognize all of a sudden the fact that the words that come out of my mouth end up being more corrupting than they do encouraging. So is wisdom good? It does. But it can't help you tame the tongue. You're still a sinner. Look at verse 23. All this I've tested by wisdom. See that? I've seen everything and I've tested it all by wisdom. I've recognized that wisdom makes you strong, but wisdom can't make you stop being a sinner. I said, I will be wise. Remember, this is how Solomon began the book of Ecclesiastes. To take with wisdom and lay hold of all that he could see and experience in life under the sun. This was his, his <clears throat> excuse me, ambition. I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and, ver- and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What's he saying? That true wisdom, what is Solomon looking for in this passage? He's not just looking for how to navigate life, right? That's not the ultimate thing he's looking for. What he's looking for is the why behind life. He's looking for what makes sense of the fact that life is variable and inconsistent and the righteous die early and the wicked live long lives. How do I navigate life in this world? How can I finally find the ground and the root of all things? And what's he say here? It's too high. I can't reach it. It's too deep. I can't plumb its depths. If you read Job chapter 28, it's said there that, uh, that Sheol and the grave have only heard a rumor of wisdom. That even there in the book of Job, Job recognizes that wisdom is not something that I can lay hold of. I can't grasp it. I can't make sense of life down here. Who can find it out? Now, that find it out is going to help us as we move into the next section here. That phrase of my ambition to find out the true things about life is going to push me into the last few verses, which arguably are the most difficult verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at what he says in 25. I turned my heart and just watch the verbs that he used here. It's like he, it's like he is exhausting all of his energy in this search. No one has searched for wisdom like Solomon has searched for wisdom. No one has attempted to plumb the depths of the why behind everything like Solomon has. So even when we read this, we recognize this individual is manic in his approach to making sense of life under the sun. And he's continuously frustrated. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. What an interesting word, the scheme of things. He's going to use it three times in a few verses here. But it essentially means uh, to think or to plan or to calculate. He's almost going to use mathematical language 
as he evaluates life under the sun. To seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. I've explored it all. You see how he keeps using these words. Righteous, wise, foolish, madness. He's exploring every kind of pathway under the sun. Look at what he says in 26. And I find something more bitter than death. So we've, we've learned some things about ourselves up to this point, haven't we? We've learned that there are some certain things about God that we can't understand. We've learned that there's a variability of life that, frankly, for us is frustrating. It exposes this expectation to us that life ought to work according to the rules. The good guys win. The bad guys lose. That's how it works. And we're confronted with the fact that we're sinners, and now Solomon says, I find more, something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, you got a couple of possibilities here. Solomon may be talking about folly and wisdom. He may be stepping in to say that, uh, like in Proverbs, Proverbs pictures folly and wisdom as two women who are speaking to their generation, speaking to those who are passing by which could be the case here, that folly uh, ensnares you and traps you. But I think better is to face what Solomon has experienced in his own life here. So guys, be quiet for a second. Ladies, are there women like this? Are there women whose ambition and whose heart is to corrupt and trap men? Are there women out there whose hands are like iron chains and handcuffs to wrap a man around their finger so that they might control and manipulate and get everything out of him they can? Ladies? Brothers in Christ, listen to your sisters in Christ who know that there are women out there like that. Now, let me prove it to you. Keep your finger there. Turn to 1 Kings 11. Why would we be emphasizing Solomon's experience? 1 Kings chapter 11. You see the heading in 1 Kings chapter 11 says this, Solomon turns from the Lord. Well, what is it for Solomon that turned him from the Lord? Look at 1 Kings 11 verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your what? Your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil 
in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their God. Come back to Ecclesiastes. What happened? Is that there was something not just in Solomon's speech, right? We've already proved the fact that the wise can be sinners by the things that they say. But for Solomon, his wants triumphed over his wisdom. His desires for things enslaved him. Now, does Solomon speak from experience? He does. He speaks from a place where he recognizes that there were women that came into it. You know, there's no good wife of Solomon. There is no woman that he bound his life to. He became, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, untethered from morality because of his desires. And the desires, the things that he clung to in love, ended up clinging to him, ended up binding him, ended up enslaving him. Verse 26, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. See, the issue is not just that we are sinners. The issue is that we are addicts to the things that we love, isn't it? The issues is that we love and worship the wrong things, and we love them so much that they end up, Peter says this, anything by which a man is overcome, to that he is enslaved. So for Solomon, it was women. But for all of us who are in this room, there are dark things in your heart that seek to enslave you, aren't there? There are things about which you don't want to talk about. There are things that sit outside your door like God told Cain. Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. What does it mean to please God? Well, in context, it means to start with the basics, doesn't it? It's to fear God. Like Proverbs 3 says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be refreshment to your heart and healing to your bones. 27. Behold, this is what I found, said the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. What's he still looking for? He's still looking for a way to make sense of it. He's adding one and one and one. I should make sense of it. One and one and one. It should make sense. It should come together. It should fit. I should be able to understand life. One and one and one. While adding one thing to another, verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly over and over and over and over. I'm looking for the why. I'm looking for the why. And I'm confronted with the fact that both my words and my wants are corrupting me. Now, much my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Now, here's what I want to do a little experiment. Uh, if you have, let's read the remainder of this verse here together in 28. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Who has the word upright or righteous in brackets in your Bible? You do? Raise your hand up high so we see which Bibles to throw away. Okay. <laughs> Uh, It's supplied, it's not in the Hebrew text. Uh, And 
Uh, comment, I've read the commentators on this. They are all over the place. They're like, Solomon's a misogynist. Solomon is just confused. Solomon has had a hard time with women. So, whatever it is. Uh, and what the, comment, what the translators do is they read a word from verse 29 and they plunk it up in verse 28. I think you should read verse 28 in light of verse 27. Verse 27, we are seeking to make sense of life, right? Solomon is looking at life and looking for the why, and he's looking out at humanity. He's looking at his own irrational pursuit of women that are going to draw his heart away from the Lord and enslave him. And now he looks out on humanity. And I don't think his point here is that I've only found one man in a thousand who are righteous. And I found no women that are righteous. I don't think that's the best interpretation. What I think he's doing in seeking to make sense of things is said, I've found one guy in a thousand that have made sense to me the way their life has worked. And women, they're a mystery. I don't know what to do with women. They don't make sense to me at all. But it's almost a Hebrew parallelism way for you to say, people don't make sense. Wouldn't you agree that the sinful choices that you make in your life are fundamentally irrational? They don't make sense to you. They don't make sense to Solomon. And Solomon is looking for the why behind the what of our lives and recognizing anytime life is irrational and confusing and deceptive and people are involved, it's hard to understand. It's hard to make sense of things. And only one in a thousand, what's the percentage on that? Point oh one. If you do math for a living, tell me later. It's a percentage, real small. That's what I know. Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not, sorry, I read that. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Verse 29, this alone is what I found. If people don't make sense, if my own sinful nature causes me to walk through life and that doesn't make sense, if being wise during my time under my life under the sun, that doesn't make sense, what is the thing that Solomon has finally found that makes sense? This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. What Solomon recognized at the end of the day? Romans 3.23. All have fallen short of the glory of God. You can bet on death, and you can bet on the fact that man is a sinner. Now, here's, what do we do with this? Don't you want to know? What I want to know, this is the thing I've been wrestling with all week. What do we do with this reality that we come to the end of all of Solomon, the wisest persons on earth, and he comes to the end of all of his searching and all of his seeking and all of his wisdom? And what I want to do is, is come back to what verse 1 in this chapter said. That the day of death is better than the day of birth. One of the things that I have recognized about just life as a Christian and one of the things that I think that Solomon shows us here is that mankind is always seeking a scheme. Now, in context, what are the schemes of mankind? You have a cross-reference that goes back to Genesis 3, right? What did Eve want? I want to be like God. I want to be wise knowing good and evil. 
I want there not to be a consequence for my disobedience. I don't want to fear God and the one thing he told me not to do and to submit and bow my knee to God and who he is. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is circumvent God and get to blessing. What I want to do is leave God, explore and enjoy Eden on my terms, but not have God. Because God is just annoying. He doesn't play by the rules. Have you learned that? That God doesn't play by your rules? That God is sovereign and you are not? And the schemes of man in context here are the ways in which we make to desire to make sense of life without God. There are ways in which all of us have wound into our dark, twisted hearts plans and schemes to get the best out of life, but not to have God. I'd like to make a lot of money and secure my future, my safety, my security, and my comfort, but I don't really want God, and here's my plan to do it. That I want to keep this sin secret and on the side and experience the joy and blessing and the th of the things that I worship, but I don't want to bow the knee to God and actually repent. I don't want to admit that God is God and I am not. I, I would like to make enough money and go to the best school so that I can exhibit some element of autonomy in life, that I never really have to submit myself to anybody. It's a scheme. It's a plan. It's a goal that I have to make sure that life works on my terms and I will leverage my ambition, my education, my tenacity, my wisdom and insight in my career field to make sure that I get everything I want. Am I focused on fearing God? Am I recognizing that I still bring into those ambitions the fact that I'm a sinner and the fact that my heart is drawn to things that will enslave me? No, I want life on my terms. And Solomon all through this goes, I've been there and I've been in chains. I've been there, and it hasn't made sense to me. All through the Bible, God is a God of disruption. You know that? That God interrupts things. And I have found the longer that I live, I look forward to disruptions. Because if I don't love God... If I don't want God, if I don't want to know God, then really what I want is God over there and for me to have success in these things. So when Jesus arrives on the scene and he frustrates the religious leaders, what is happening? He's upending their power and their love of money and he's saying things that don't make sense and he's teaching with authority. He's disrupting the status quo. We have things the way we like them, Jesus. Don't start talking about all this meekness and kindness and love and serving and giving of ourselves. Why does the rich young ruler go away sad? Because Jesus disrupts his economic plan. Why does Jesus, in John 6, talk to the disciples and go, uh, eat my flesh, drink my blood? This is hard to hear, isn't it? And they go, yeah, uh, could we get, like, another teaching on that? You've got to be all in. Why does Jesus interrupt Peter saying, surely you'll never go to the cross, Jesus. Surely this will never happen to you. And Jesus goes, I'm going to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. 
What's he doing? Why does Jesus frustrate the disciples who want to rule on his right and on his left? He's disruptive. This is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means to fear God. To be in a place in life where you recognize he is God, he holds all the cards, and my job is to bow the knee and serve in worship of who he is. So when Jesus starts to disrupt your schemes, give thanks and bow the knee. When Jesus begins to ruin your plans, praise the Lord. Because the fact of the matter is, you will die, you're a sinner, and apart from the intervention and the disruption of the grace of God in your life, you have no hope. And we think that starts at the beginning. We don't like that 10 years into our relationship with God, do we? We don't like that 20 years into our relationship with God. God, I did all that. I gave it all up. I decided to follow you. Now I've built this nice, ordered piece of property and land of my greenhouse of my life. And what are you doing knocking down windows and doors and disrupting my life and my plan? And God, frankly, I'm bitter about it because I don't want to fear God. I want you to fear me. I want you to play by my rules. And Solomon gets to the end. You know what the problem with man is? They sought out many schemes. They didn't want to fear God. They didn't want to bow the knee. And the good news is the fact that Jesus comes for us, isn't it? It's a good news that Jesus disrupts our lives and enters in and lays hold of our hearts that are enslaved and in chains and breaks those things and gives us his grace and forgives our sins and raises us to walk in new life, gives us his spirit to walk in his ways so that we might fear him and present to him a true and authentic heart of wisdom. That's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that God is a God who invades your life. And he takes all the prisoners and sets them free. Right? You with me? The end of this passage is dismal and failure and I can't understand but for the grace of Jesus Christ who came for sinners and came to find us and came to set us free. And that's the joy of what it means to be a Christian. Amen? Father in heaven, These are things that we need to be reminded of, that there is no sin but what is common to man and that you will not let us be tempted beyond our ability but will provide a way of escape. Father, for those who are in this room who are bound by the desires that lay hold of their heart, I pray for your grace. I pray that they would turn in repentance, they would fear the Lord and turn away from evil that they would find healing for their heart and refreshment for their bones, that there would be joy and delight at bowing the knee to a God who is sovereign and orders all things according to his purpose. Father, would we see your providence in our life and blessing in our life that we would understand that disruptions are not random, disruptions are providential to our life, and that we would submit to you in Jesus' name, amen.